Last year, the musical Hamilton came to the Orpheum. I know a number of members were able to go. Jess and I won tickets in the Lord's Kindness and got to see the show. If you're not familiar with it, it, of course, follows uh, the story of Alexander Hamilton, one of our country's founding fathers. He fought in the Revolutionary War. He was a banker, a lawyer, economist. He was an important defender and interpreter of the U.S. Constitution. And probably most notably, he founded our financial system and served as the first secretary of the Treasury under George Washington. And, um, and of course, he's on the $10 bill. Early on in the musical, Hamilton meets another character, Aaron Burr. He would go on to become our country's seventh vice president. Him and Hamilton are political rivals. And even though the story is about Hamilton, these two characters really share parallel story arcs. They both want to make a name for themselves through public service, but they'll do so upon very different ideals. Burr's character is infamously political. He has no beliefs, no convictions. His only MO is to get ahead. Early on in the story, him and Hamilton meet. They come across three friends who are having a conversation about um, the impending Revolutionary War, and they ask Burr to offer his um, kind of wisdom on the matter, on whether the colony should move to war. Burr responds, Good luck with that. You're taking a stand. You spit, I'm a sit. We'll see where we land. You see, Burr will always land on the right side of history because he'll change as he needs to. Hamilton is the opposite. He's the embodiment of conviction. He responds, If you stand for nothing, Burr, what do you fall for? If you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? That is, if you're not willing to live for anything, then what are you willing to die for? And I think this is really it, the essence of it. If you're not willing to die for anything, then you're not actually living for anything. Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton in these lines strikes at the inextricable link between what we live for and what we die for, between what we're willing to die for and how that dictates the way we live. You see, it's possible to think you die for something, but not actually be living for it. Friends, what are you standing for? What would you fall for and why? Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And here we're given a picture of a man with absolute conviction and certainty that completely dictates how he lives and dies. And it's not the building of an earthly country or the making of his own name. It's about the name and kingdom of another, Jesus Christ. Why would someone give their whole life to the point of death for someone else? Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. We pick up where we left off last time. What does it matter only that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice? Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which I should choose. I am torn between the two. 
I long to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning in your word, that as we hear from you, we would see you, that we would see your glory in your son, that we would see that he is indeed worthy of our very lives up to the point of death and beyond. We pray that you would be honored um, in the way we think about you today and the way that we apply this sermon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our big idea this morning is simple. Jesus is worth living and dying for. Jesus is worth living and dying for. And this morning we'll consider three ideas from the text. Paul's reason for joy, Paul's reason for hope, and Paul's reason for ministry. Paul's reasons for joy, hope, and ministry. First, Paul's reason for joy. Last time we saw that even though Paul is uh, chained in prison with the potential execution on the horizon, the gospel was advancing. Right, He's sharing the gospel in prison. The whole Praetorium Guard has heard about why he's there, why he's in chains. And then the believers have become even more fearless by Paul's example to share the gospel. Some of these believers, however, weren't sharing the gospel out of love for Paul, but out of rivalry with him. It seems like they were jealous of his fruitful ministry. And even though they were treating him like a rival, Paul rejoiced because Christ was still proclaimed and that's what mattered. They might view themselves as Paul's competitors, but Paul only viewed himself as Christ's slave. The true gospel is about Jesus, not about Paul, and it's being proclaimed. It's advancing, and Paul can rejoice in that. Then Paul says in verse 18 and 19, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation. Paul is switching from rejoicing in the proclamation of the gospel both from those who are his friends and his quote-unquote rivals, to now rejoicing in his current situation because it will lead to his salvation. That's what the this is referring to. This will lead to my salvation. This whole situation, his being in prison, his being tormented both physically by those outside the church and emotionally by those even inside the church, this whole situation will lead to Paul's salvation, and he can rejoice in that. But what does Paul mean by salvation? Your translation might render it salvation or deliverance or something like well-being. It's a Greek word most commonly translated as salvation, though it can mean several other things. Paul is saying he can rejoice because salvation awaits. Is he saying he's joyful because he'll be released from prison or he's joyful because all of this will lead to his ultimate salvation? Or is he saying something different? Here's what we see in the passage, verse 19. This current situation, Paul wrongly treated like a criminal by his adversaries, um, him even being opposed by those in the church, this whole situation will lead to this salvation. Verse 19, this salvation comes through the prayers of the Philippians and helped by the Holy Spirit. And verse 20, Paul's saying that he doesn't want to experience shame. He wants Christ to be honored whether by life or death. And that's a big clue. 
regardless of whether Paul lives or dies, as an outcome of his trial, this salvation awaits him. Because death is a possibility and salvation is a certainty, this means that this salvation can't be deliverance from prison, which is a pretty common interpretation. Regardless of Paul's living or dying, the salvation is certain. You see, Paul can die and be saved. That doesn't work if this salvation is released from prison. You can't be executed and uh, be released from prison at the same time. So Paul's talking about some different kind of salvation, but what? There's one more helpful clue. Paul is referencing, referencing Job chapter 13, verses 13 through 18, with the word-for-word quote of the first half of verse 16. Job, of course, has experienced extreme suffering, loss, and tragedy at the hands of Satan by the permission of God. And he, his friends have come to comfort him, but they've ended up accusing him. And the gist of their argument is this. Uh, bad things happen to people who do bad things. Bad things are happening to you, therefore you did something bad, you should repent. Okay, we see a little prosperity gospel in the book of Job. And Job tells his friends to be silent. To shut up, basically. He said that he's going to put his hope in God. What Job is wanting to do, he's wanting to state his case before God. He feels safe there because no godless person can stand there. That means no one else will be there to accuse Job. It'll just be Job and God. And he believes that by putting his hope in God, verse 16, will result in my deliverance or will result in my salvation. Job's not going to be acquitted before his friends but he can be acquitted where it matters, before God. Job is talking about final salvation and specifically vindication before God against all those who have opposed him and accused him. They're saying, Job, you did something wrong. Job knows that one day before God, the story will be put straight. And this is precisely what Paul is talking about. Paul is speaking about final salvation and specifically about being vindicated before the judgment seat of God. That is, Paul, though he's imprisoned by little rulers in a little country and town, though he's rejected by um, religious authorities in Jerusalem, though he's opposed by both real Christians and false prophets, when Paul stands before the judgment seat of Christ, he will be vindicated. He'll be acquitted. It'll be clear to him and to all that he was in the right, that he wasn't crazy, that his time was not spent in vain, that his gifts were not wasted, that Jesus was worth it. He will hear the words that we all long for. Well done, good and faithful servant. He will hear on that day the only opinion that matters, and it will be God's. And God will justify will save and will vindicate Paul of all the wrongs done against him. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 5. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Have you considered that your salvation includes vindication? And that that vindication is a reason for joy, that though your friends might mock you for following Christ and not the world, 
that though your coworkers might dislike you from sharing the gospel with them, that though your family might think you're wasting your life, that though the culture might more and more call you a bigot, that God will one day vindicate you. It will be clear to all that if you're in Christ and you ran after him, you chose the one thing that mattered, that you were living in the truth while all others were living a lie. This is why Paul can rejoice like Job. He has put his hope not in popular opinion, not in circumstances, not in a government's ability to render justice, but in God's final judgment. He might be judged and condemned before an earthly tribunal, but he won't be before God. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So if this is final salvation and and most specifically vindication, then how does it come through the prayer of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit of Christ? If you recall chapter 1, Paul was confident that because God had started the work of salvation in their lives, he would carry it on to completion. Okay, What God starts, he will finish. There's no question about it. It's a certainty. And yet, Paul prays for their sanctification, that they would make it on that day in purity and blamelessness, that they would have the fruit of righteousness as they stand before God. Paul likewise is expecting that the Philippians are praying for his perseverance on the way to final salvation. And it's something he needs. He needs their prayers and the help of the Spirit if he's going to stand before Rome with courage and not denounce Christ. His perseverance in this sense is actually necessary for that final judgment. That doesn't mean that Paul is saved by works. It does mean that his works are necessary to prove that he's saved, right? Good trees produce good fruit. And the means by which God intends to preserve Paul is the prayers of the saints and the help of the Spirit. The Spirit will strengthen him, will give him courage, will give him hope, will cause him to fear God and not men, will give him the words to speak even. God is carrying along the good work he began through the prayers of the saints. Friends, this is why it's so important that we pray through the directory In one sense, we need each other's help on our way to heaven. And it's not because salvation depends on works. Perseverance is both a gift and necessary for salvation. What God has begun, he will finish. There's no question about it. If we're in Christ, we will make it. But one of the means by which God has chosen to preserve us is us. It's our faithful ministry to one another in prayer and the word. This is why membership is so important. This is why the gathering is so important. That God actually preserves us through the ordinary means of grace. He uses ordinary people to do something extraordinary in one another's lives. Verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. While the Philippians are undoubtedly um, desiring Paul's release, There's one thing that they and Paul are praying and hoping for more as he stands before Rome on trial. Two things. One, that he's not ashamed about anything, rather that he's courageous, right? And secondly, that Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or death. Notice, Paul's concern isn't whether he lives or dies. It's actually inconsequential. It's a secondary or tertiary concern even. What really matters is, 
is whether Christ is honored in how he lives and dies. Paul does not want to experience the shame of denying Christ before the Romans, and worse yet, not being vindicated before God. What Paul will stand for and fall for are one and the same. It's the honor of Jesus Christ. Paul's all-consuming ambition is that Christ be honored, that he be exalted, that he be glorified in Paul's body. That is, in how Paul conducts himself as he awaits this sentence from Rome. For Christians in the West, in the U.S. in particular, and the South especially, we just don't often have to think about death as a consequence of our following Jesus. Right? We're not, we just don't experience this type of persecution. I think if you asked anyone in our body, um, if they were put in a situation where they had to choose between denouncing Christ and living or clinging to him and dying, I think we would all say and believe that we would die. We'd take the bullet. We wouldn't abandon our Savior. And I pray that's true. We hope that Christ will be honored in our death. But do we hope that Christ will be honored in our lives? You see, in one sense, a hypothetical quick death apart from any persecution is a much easier option. You die in instant glory. But are you willing to be disliked by all of your coworkers because you're sharing the gospel with them? Are you willing to risk losing your job? Are you willing to risk 10 minutes of embarrassment to tell someone at Kroger about Jesus? Are you willing to be less popular on your college campus because uh, you're the Jesus guy or girl? What about your children avoiding you because they know that you will, in love, continue to call them to repentance and trust in Christ? Are you willing to be uncomfortable with them? Perhaps your goal is for Christ to be honored in your life, but you'll stop short at anything close to death. I'm not talking about being foolish, but does the risk of death completely shut down the idea of service to God for you? Will it keep you from gathering with us soon? Will it keep you from serving your neighbors? Would it keep you from pursuing long-term missions if the Lord called you to it? Is our desire that Christ would be honored in our bodies, whether by life or death? Jessica's mother, she lives in Asheville, and she's been serving since um, the pandemic began. She's been serving in a homeless shelter and a COVID testing facility so that she can do a public good. She prays for every single person she comes in contact with, and she seeks opportunities to share the gospel when she's able. She's at two of the places that everyone else is trying to avoid. Now, she's not being foolish, but she has put herself at an increased chance for death. That's just a fact. And it's created, I think, among um, the children initial uneasiness. And we all have to remind and ask ourselves, do we really believe that Christ is worth honoring in life and death? If she dies, yes, there would be consequences. It would be hard for our hard for our family. But as we're about to see, do we really believe it would be gain for her? Is Jesus really worth it? Paul is joyful because he believes that through this entire situation, that though he's opposed on every side, he will be saved and vindicated before God. The prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit will sustain him as he stands before the Roman tribunal. He won't be ashamed. He will be vindicated, and Christ will be honored, and that is what matters. Perhaps the most basic impulse for any living creature on the planet is to live. 
It's to live and not die, and really, it's to survive. Our entire lives are shaped by the fear of death and the extension of an oftentimes clinging um, to life. It's why we work out. It's why we wear seatbelts, why we take vitamins, why some of us diet, why we're willing to undergo procedures in old age or to be hooked up to equipment. It's why we have hospitals. I'm not saying any of those things are bad in and of themselves. I'm simply saying we don't want to die, and that's a basic fear and a God-given fear to an extent. So then how can Paul have such confidence in the face of death? Why is he clinging to Christ rather than to life? We've seen Paul's reason for joy, that he'll be vindicated. We turn now to a reason for hope. The reason for Paul's hope. Verse 20, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul's greatest desire is that Christ be honored, that he's exalted, that he's glorified, magnified. That is that Christ's supreme worth and satisfaction are showed off in Paul, whether Paul lives or dies. Why? Verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. That is for Paul, all of life is about Christ his purpose in life, his dreams for the future, how he relates to his family and friends, what he does for work, what he does with his money, what he does with his free time, how he thinks, how he acts, how he feels, how he responds to other, how he conceives of himself, his identity. Paul's entire existence is about Christ, all of it. There's no part of Paul's life, purpose, identity that function outside of the lordship of Jesus. There's not one aspect of his existence that exists outside the reality of who Christ is and what he requires of Paul. If Paul's going to live on in the flesh, it's going to be about Jesus. Everything. Work life, family life, thought life, entertainment, everything is subsumed by this all-consuming reality of Christ. Paul gets at this in chapter 3. Beginning in verse 7, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ. Verse 10, my goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's goal is to know Christ. Even if the gaining of Christ means the losing of everything else, it's worth it. To live is Christ. Christian, is to live Christ for you? Is all of your life about the pursuit of Jesus? Or is Christ having to compete with something else? To live is Christ plus my reputation. To live is Christ plus my family. To live is Christ plus my work or my comfort or my hobbies. To live is Christ plus what? Christ, of course, has no desire to compete for second place. And he doesn't even want to be first among a list of many. To live is Christ, period. And here's the beautiful thing. When life is about Christ, then death is gain. Let that sink in for a second. Death is gain. 
I just mentioned this, but the fear of death, whether consciously or not, it dominates our existence. And Paul, facing execution, can say with great confidence and clarity and conviction that death is gain. Why? Look at verse 23, the middle of the verse. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To live is to live for Christ. To die is to be with Christ. Many as slaves obey their masters on the point of death, and if death meant for them being reunited with their earthly master, it wouldn't be gain. If life is about Jesus, and death is gain because it means being with Jesus, what does that tell you about Jesus? That he's worthy. The one who gave up his life so that we might live is worthy of our very lives, even to the point of death. And it also means that death isn't something to be feared. This doesn't mean that death is a good thing or a natural thing, right? It is unnatural. It's contrary to God's intent for the world. And we long for the day that Jesus returns to renew all things, to remove the curse as far as it's found. But we don't have to fear death in the way that our neighbors do. Death is the door that leads to our heavenly home with Jesus. We'll be in the same place as him, face to face with him, freed from the flesh that seeks to compete with him. Christian, wherever, whenever, and however you die, be it at home in old age or in a hospital bed a month from now, your last breath on earth isn't loss, it's gain. To be ushered into the holy and happy land that is heaven to be face to face with your creator and redeemer. And this is what Paul can't get over. Paul, the least of all the saints. Paul, the persecutor of the church. Paul, the chief of all sinners. When he dies, he will experience gain because he will be face to face with the one who died for him. The one who is inexpressibly glorious, the holy one, the majestic one, the righteous one, the faithful one, the good one, the gracious one, the kind one, the merciful one, the loving one. Christian, death for us is gain because we, become, we come face to face with our God. Face to face with our high priest, our prophet and king, face to face with our brother and friend, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul seeks to honor Christ, whether by life or death, because living is about him, and death isn't something to be feared. Paul's great hope is to gain Christ through death. If you recall my last sermon, I mentioned Jim Elliott. He and four others were martyred trying to make contact with a violent tribe in Ecuador in hopes of sharing the gospel with them. He was only 28 years old, was married, and had an infant daughter. Was that a foolish thing to do? I said no in part because it led to the advance of the gospel among the tribe. His wife actually uh, moved in with them, shared the gospel with them, and led many of them, including his killers, to Christ. And no because of what Paul says here. Death is actually gain. In a journal entry, Jim wrote similar words that are oft quoted. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's not a foolish thing to trade passing things, your reputation, money, your own physical body, for an eternal thing. He is no fool 
who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The day we die will be the day we gain. Christian, to die is to gain because it's to be with Jesus. If you're not in Christ, if to live has nothing to do with Jesus, if you've not put your trust in him, then to die won't be gain. It will be loss. To die and find yourself expelled from the goodness of God forever and to be under his just wrath. But God has made a way for you to be forgiven. He has dealt both with sin and death in his son. God the son became a man. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead and he offers you free life and forgiveness of sins if you would only turn and trust in him. Death for you two can be gain and it's a gift that you could be with Jesus for eternity. Death is a fearful thing if you don't know what awaits you. Some are confident and mistaken and they will experience great shame. For the Christian, we can hope and have joy because our confidence is in Christ. We will not be put to shame. We will be vindicated. When we die, we will be with Jesus immediately, consciously. But Paul believes that he will actually remain in the body and he tells us why. So we've considered his reasons for joy and for hope. And now briefly, we'll consider his reason for ministry and really his reason for continued ministry beginning in or picking up in verse 22. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Paul is reflecting on his impending trial and the two options that await him, right? Life or death. And the odd thing here is Paul seems to be saying it's his choice, with I, which either makes him sound like God or makes him sound suicidal. Uh, but Paul, he's employing a Greek rhetorical device where you compare two good things, not a good thing and a bad thing, but you compare um, basically the merits of two options and then you choose one. So Paul's not morbidly seeking death. He's not suicidal. His goal, of course, is to serve Christ, which might lead to death. And Paul, of course, is trusting in the sovereign hand of God. He knows it's God's decision. But he's comparing these two possible outcomes, and he's doing so to instruct the Philippians and us about how we should think about life and death. Just as he'll put forward Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2 as models of humility and ministry, and he will do so of Christ as well in chapter 2, preeminently so as the model of humility and ministry. Well, now Paul's putting forth himself as someone to imitate and follow. Verse 22, if Paul remains in the flesh, that is, if he's not executed, it means fruitful work for him. We get a picture here of what to live as Christ means for Paul. If he happens to make it out of jail, if he happens not to die, it's not time to retire. It's not time to move to an island. It's not time to get out while you're ahead. It's time to get back to work. All of life means the pursuit of Christ and the completion of the work given to Paul. You see, for Paul, to live for Christ is to labor for Christ. Verse 23, Paul says he's torn between the two. He's legitimately anguishing between these two options because to depart is to be with Jesus, which is far better. It's not even comparable. But verse 24, staying is more necessary for you. 
Paul's at the end of his race. The prize is at hand. He can see the finish line. The whole of his life has led up to this one point, but some of his brothers and sisters need help to cross the finish line. And others haven't even begun to get into the race. Living, leaving to be with Christ is better for me, but to stay is more necessary for you. You see, Paul is willing to delay his heavenly bliss for the benefit of his brothers and sisters. He's making his decision based on um, the humility we'll read about in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Verse 4, everyone should look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Paul is willing to give up what is far better for what is more necessary for others. What would it look like if our members shared the same disposition of humility in our evangelism and discipleship? That we were willing to give up good, even better things sometimes for the sake of others, like not going on a vacation to go on a mission trip, or to use your day off to help a member who's at high risk and can't get their own groceries, or um, using your retirement to serve at a testing facility, or giving up an early morning to lead a D group, to be with other members in word and prayer, to give up rest right after work, um, to make sure that you can do family worship with your children. Do you view others' spiritual needs as more necessary for their sake? Verse 25, since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith. Paul believes that it's more necessary for the Philippians that he stays, and so he believes this is how God will fix the outcome. And it's a good intuition based on what Paul is about to write about God the Son in chapter 2, that though he existed in the form of God, he did not count it as something to be exploited, but rather he took the form of a servant, of a man, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God in humility considered the interests of others. So Paul suspects that he will remain and that he will remain for fruitful labor, specifically for their progress and joy in the faith. Their progress and joy in the faith. And faith here, it's not subjective. It's not our, um, our believing in God. It's objective. It's the content of our faith, and it's being used as a shorthand for the Christian life. Paul wants them to progress in their Christian life. He wants, as we saw in chapter 1, his prayer, which really encompasses the Christian life that they would grow, that their love would grow in knowledge with all discernment so that they may be able to prove what's superior and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. That's progress of faith. Growth in love, growth in knowledge, growth in holiness. And Paul wants them to grow in their joy. This entire section, a section about laboring hard for Christ, about being persecuted and dying for Christ, it's sandwiched in joy. Is that shocking to you? Do these things sound like reasons to rejoice? The Christian faith ought to be a joyful faith. Paul prays for the Philippians with joy in verse 4. Paul rejoices that Christ is proclaimed, verse 18. And then again in 18, he rejoices that he will be vindicated before God. And here, part of the reason why Paul's willing to be beaten and chained and face death, part of the reason he's willing to Delay his being with Christ is their joy, their joy in the faith. Do you consider the Christian faith a joyful one? Do you consider the joy of those you disciple? 
These two things ought to happen at the same time. Progress in the faith and joy in the faith. Because love and knowledge and holiness and service to a joyful, self-giving, good God produces joy. Confidence that when we die we're with Jesus produces joy. Trust that everything that comes to us, as difficult as it may be, comes from a good and sovereign God produces joy. The thought of working hard to please the Heavenly Father produces joy. The progress of joy tells us that the progress of faith is a relational enterprise. Progressing in faith is not uh, rote obedience to an external law. It's not the learning of cold doctrine um, as an end in and of itself. It's the pursuit of worship of a personal God. It's the pursuit of and worship of a personal God, and that produces joy to learn about Him, to be like Him, to trust Him, to glorify Him. It produces joy. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8-9, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I like how Piper describes joy, Christian joy. He calls it serious joy. It's not sequential to sorrow. It's not as though you're sad and then you're happy. Serious joy can be simultaneous. Paul can lament and experience sorrow even as he's in prison, and he can experience joy because it transcends his circumstances. Right? He knows that Christ is being honored in his body. He knows that death will mean gain for him. He can feel natural fear of death and feel joy because of the prospect of being with Christ on the other side. The Philippians can experience persecution at the hands of the Romans and feel joy because they're being conformed to the image of the Son. Even now, we can feel joy that transcends our circumstances, right? our increased, perhaps, risk of death due to COVID, a risk of losing a job because of the economy, um, the risk of being mocked by our coworkers because we share the gospel with them. We can feel joy that transcends our circumstances because we worship and know the good God of love and joy. That doesn't mean that this joy doesn't require work, right? Piper calls it a serious joy. Paul says that it's actually the fruit of his labors among them. And he does all this. Um, their progress, he wants to labor for their progress in the faith, for their joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. When Paul returns to them, it will lead to their progress and joy, which will lead to boasting in Christ. They will boast in Christ. When you, when you boast about something, it's because you're confident in it and you want to show it off. So think about maybe getting a new car. You have confidence in it. You're wanting to show off all the gadgets to your friends, what it does. So the boasting in something, there's this confidence and this desire to glory in it or to glorify it. The progress and joy of their faith through the labors of Paul will lead to their confident glorying in Jesus. Paul's ministry in the Philippians is producing in them the thing he wants in his own life, that Christ is honored. And that is a joyful thing. It's a hopeful thing. It's a humble thing. Christ is worth living and dying for because of who he is and what he's done. Objectively, there's no one like 
Jesus. He is worthy of all possible honor, glory, and praise. And subjectively for us, there's no joy like the joy of serving and being with Jesus. A life lived after Jesus will be a life that is finally vindicated. Our death will lead to an eternity with him. And it means serving others now for their progress and joy in the faith, even as we experience our own progress and joy. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He is worth living and dying for. Friends, do you believe that? Is he worth standing and falling for? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your son, that God, the son, would take the form of a servant and of a man, that he would be obedient even to the point of death on a cross, that he did this for sinners, that we might be made your sons and your daughters, that we might live forever with you, that just as Jesus was resurrected, that we have hope of the resurrection as well. We look forward to the day where Jesus will make all things new, where we, where death will just be a memory, a distant memory, where all the things that cause us pain will be taken away. We pray for our congregation that this would be true of us, that our greatest desire would be that Christ would be honored in our lives, whether by, or in our bodies, whether by life or death, that we would truly believe that all of life is about Christ. We pray that he would be our all-consuming thought in reality, that we would live unto him, um, knowing that he is a good master. We pray that we would view death as gain. Not that we would be a reckless people, but that we would be a trusting people, a people who trust you, who desire to labor for you. And we pray that those labors would be evident in Midtown, around Memphis, and through the world as you use our small little church. We pray that you'd be honored in us. In Jesus' name, amen.